It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me today is the Tory Transport Minister, George Freeman. Hi. Hi, George. How are you? Fine, thanks. I've recovered from cycling here. Good, good. Uh, George is also the co-founder of the Big Tent Ideas Festival, which this year is happening on August the 31st in London. HuffPost UK is teaming up with the festival and our journalists will be leading, contributing and chairing debates involving speakers from across the political spectrum. Uh, There are not many places where you can see the likes of Rory Stewart, Lisa Nandy, Penny Morden, Extinction Rebellion and the Joe Cox Foundation all appearing alongside each other, just to name a few. So, George, why did you start the festival and what can people expect from it? Well, I started it with a with a team of people in the summer of 2017, uh, really pretty appalled by the 2017 election campaign and actually by the referendum campaign. And it seemed to me, as someone who came into politics, because I relish the debates, I relish the engagement, um, the the chance to take control of our destiny. And good politics is is should be a force for good, even if you disagree. And I think our politics has become... Um, a force for ill, actually, in the last few years. I think it's deepened the divisions. I think it's deepened the despair. And it seemed to me that we we really need, those of us who are in party politics, have got to try and get our parties to connect better. But we also need to do something else, which is to reach out and to create a space for people who don't want to join a political party, but do want to join the political debate. And and what can our listeners expect from coming to the festival? What, what sort of experience will they have, do you yeah. think? Well, it, this year we're at a stunning venue, Mudshoot City Farm, uh, in the Lee of Canary Wharf. And that's deliberate. We want to have a debate about the future of capitalism, about the big issues shaping our society. Uh, there's a city farm there, so people can bring kids along and they can enjoy all of that. In the show, in the festival ground, uh, nine tents, economy tent, society tent, uh, democracy tent, global tent, environment tent, health tent, technology tent. And in each of those, you can have a deep immersive experience sit through the day, five or six sessions, really curated in a, in a punchy um, and exciting format. Amazing speakers, you've listed some of them. And then in the festival ground, we have all sorts of fun activities. We have the art wall, cartoon corner, speakers corner, people, people can book a slot. I mean, where else can you harangue cabinet ministers while they're having a sandwich? <laughs> uh, or even grab them and sit down on the straw bale and say, listen, I've got an idea. Um, and we're putting together a whole series of stuff really to make politics... What I think for many of us going into it, it, it was supposed to be about a festival of ideas. Uh, you've just joined Boris Johnson's government. Would you describe the Prime Minister as having a big tent politically? Well, um, we're in week two. Uh, and the reason I, I agreed to join uh, the new government is for 10 years I've been warning that there was an insurgency building in in Britain and in British politics deep grievances, deep angers and resentments. I think it goes back as far as Iraq, the deceit and the spin over that dodgy dossier and the illegitimacy, as people saw it, of that mandate. I think it goes back to the bank bailout, the crash, 
uh, the pain of uh, necessary in my view but very painful expenses of course and I, I think it's been coming for a while and I've been arguing that all of us in party politics and in parliament have got to understand those grievances better and tackle them and reach out and for me the leave vote I think the reason that the leave vote won isn't that 17.4 million people have a finely balanced view on the jurisprudential failings of the EU. I think Dominic Cummings and the team brilliantly harnessed a movement of, of grievance. And I was a Remainer, but it seems to me the genie can't go back in the bottle. What we have to do now is find a way to leave the political union that minimises the economic impact short term, maximises the longer term opportunity. But much more importantly, we make this a moment of inspiring national renewal and tackling those grievances. So um, when Boris rang me and said, listen, would you go and do your insurgent reform at transport, maybe Minister of State for the future of transport, to challenge the silos of rail, road, drive in, in interconnectivity, digital ticketing, digital signalling, uh, green transport, clean transport. I think that's a, a big agenda. And if we can do that sort of reform, uh, then I think we could inspire a new generation, that Britain could be a global force for good, exporting all this technology around the world. There's kind of one big elephant in the room here, which is, uh, Johnson has said, he's committed to leaving the EU do or die by October 31st, even if that means a no-deal Brexit. Now, wouldn't that be completely polarising and completely the opposite of what you want to achieve? And actually, would it cause such damage to the economy that we couldn't harness that innovation and, and new opportunities. I mean, what do you are you okay with a No Deal Brexit? We do you think will be okay? well. Look, I, I think I think being able to um, use the legitimate threat of a No Deal to get a good deal is a perfectly acceptable strategy. I do not agree with those hard, very few hardliners who think that a WTO long term would be satisfactory. I don't at all. I think it would be an absolute. Um, uh, disaster and politically for my party would see us out of office for two decades I think um, more importantly I think it would be very damaging to the stability of this country um, but for me uh, what the Prime Minister has said he wants to do is get a sensible deal bear in mind we were very close to getting this deal through a tweak to the backstop would do it um, but more importantly to me it, if we don't really put in place the bold domestic reforms, by which I mean bold devolution to the mayors, big theme of Big Ten, much faster infrastructure so we can connect people, part of my portfolio, really gripping the digital landscape so that we protect people's identity and their rights, shift the power to the users, uh, bust up some of the cartels, I mean really insurgent um, conservatism that radically empowers citizens. And that was part of the the Leave campaign. The bit that I loathe was the Little England xenophobic UKIP um, side of it, and I will have no truck with that. So to your question, um, there are a number of us, One Nation, bold, reforming conservatives who've joined Boris Johnson's government to help make it an inspiring government, and on the basis that it, it'll be balanced. Yeah, interesting. But just, just to stay on this, we kind of have to talk about this. Hmm. There's some suggestion now that Johnson might ignore a no-confidence vote or, you know, or call an election effectively proroguing Parliament and taking us out of the EU while Parliament isn't sitting so MPs can't block it. Would you advise against doing any of those things? Well, I think the idea of um, proroguing Parliament, uh, 
blocking Parliament is is uh, would be a huge mistake. And I don't think it's the Prime Minister's instincts. He's a parliamentarian. He's a Churchillian. He's he's a he is a real Democrat. And I I cannot for a moment imagine that that's what he would want to do. I, I do think that if he can't get a negotiated improvement, and if Parliament signals that it is going to block uh, no deal, which he needs to be able to have as a sanction in order to get a deal, then I think it is quite likely that we'll end up by hook or by crook one way or another with an election. Now, it's a huge gamble because on the one hand, uh, and this is clearly my hope, that uh, Boris is able to bring the energy, the aspiration, the vision that's been so sorely lacking to reach out and, as he did as London mayor, build a a more exciting vision of post-Brexit Britain that can reassure those who legitimately worry. Uh, And maybe his energy, uh, this government's energy, I think we've hit the ground running two weeks in, number 10 is buzzing in the middle of the summer, there's a lot going on. Maybe we can can get over the line. It may be that the last three years have overstretched the elastic and the Conservative Party will lose many of its professional public service, commuter, um, sort of moderate centrists will go to the Lib Dems. And um, no one knows, it's a huge gamble. But I think all we can do is deal with the situation as it is. And I'm committed to trying to make this a moment where we leave the political union, remain as close culturally, scientifically, security-wise and economically as we can, but take this as a moment to shape a global British destiny. I think to give a new generation who, understandably, I think, are pretty depressed by all of this, a sense that this is a a fresh start for them and we're going to shape it by them. And that's partly what the Big Tent is all about. Yeah, really interesting. And and presumably you'll be discussing post-Brexit options at the festival this year. Yes, we've tried not to make it a kind of Brexit festival um, because part of the problem with Brexit has become the sort of death star that sucks all the energy out of everything (laughs) else. So, um, But it it will um, uh, inform quite a lot of the conversations, obviously. But, I mean, big debates like the future of capitalism you know, we're going to have the IEA against the New Economics Foundation. That is basically Thatcher versus Corbyn. Really brought alive, and that'll be a sellout, pack-out tent, I'm sure. We're going to do cannabis, and whether this is time to really grip the regulation. And I led the campaign for medical cannabis. I think there's still a debate to be had about recreational, but it's a real debate. We should have it. And we're going to do net zero. We've got Extinction Rebellion coming. I I think these are the big issues that they don't really get debated openly, properly at party conference. It is a different format. Mm. And people want to hear the debate. And last year, I think people said, God, to hear opposing cabinet ministers in jeans taking each other on with a smile and a drink and debating it openly is is very refreshing. Uh, And we're also showcasing a lot of the younger generation, um, new generation MPs from all parties, Lisa Nandy, Luciana Berger, Leila Moran, my co-chair, Sally Morgan, Baroness Sally Morgan, great new Labour minister, um, and we're going to try and really give voice to the people and the places that I think have been squeezed out of politics in the last few years. And that for me, unless their voice is put at the heart of a, a new settlement, a new deal, then I think you can have whatever form of Brexit you want. It won't last. Uh, and that, I think, is the real challenge. And it's the real opportunity f- of the Big Ten. Moving on from Brexit, Johnson's kind of focused on kind of vote-winning, popular, short-term-ish policies, boosting health spending, cracking down on knife crime, that kind of thing. If you could pick one big economic and one big 
social reform for this government to make? What would they be? Or what do you think they could be? One each. Yeah. Uh, um, I know it's You won't be surprised question, given I'm sort of known as a policy wonk that I, I've yeah. got lots, but let me, let me just choose them. So on, on economy, um, I would go for uh, skills. And um, I think part of what's gone wrong and gone on in this country is that a, a growing number of our citizens have started to feel that leaving school, um, they don't have a passport to a fulfilling career. Certainly a lot of my constituents, um, Cambridge is 40 miles away, might as well be 100 years away. And I think the skills path, pathway needs to be completed. We've done some good stuff, the introduction of T-levels, the apprenticeships. But I'd like to give people a, a sort of opportunity Oyster card, literally a smart card that's got free travel on it, that's got their lifelong learning entitlements, that's got their accreditation, and they can present it, um, and it'll take them through to apprenticeship work experience. I'd go further... I'd use our DFID budget to offer blue-collar school leavers who aren't going on to higher education frontline experience around the world on the front line of our aid program. I think we've got to create a sense of global citizenship, Britain as a citizen, that means something to our own citizens. And I think if we could re-covenant that sense of citizenship, which is economic as well as social, I think we'd see some of the kind of hostility to to migrants and stuff fall away. Yeah, it seems to me you think British citizenship is almost, or even English nationality, has become too wrapped up in this kind of anti-immigrant vote leave kind of idea. You see an opportunity and possibly a need to reset that. Yeah, I think we are living through, and I've written and talked about this widely in 10 years, a sort of crisis of disconnection and a crisis of citizenship that I think a lot of people uh, no longer know quite what being a British citizen means, what the contract is. And, I mean, you know, traditionalists on the sort of right would say, well, we go back to the 1950s, you know, um, you know, women knew their place at the sink and men went out to work eight hours a day. And it was a very rigid post-war sort of pathé news. Yes, Britain is at work and happy families up and down. It's just we can't go back to that and people don't want to. But I think they want to know what is the deal, actually? What what is the contract for young people? I pay in, I pay for my university, What's the offer? What is Britain doing to give me a sense of economic security, social security, environmental security? So for me on on economy, I mean, I'd also have much greater relief for entrepreneurs, for the people who take a risk, start a business, employ people. And on social, um, I would go for social enterprise. I think there is a growing recognition that the state has a duty to deliver really good services, which it sometimes struggles to do. And organisations like, give an example, North London Cares, set up by Alex Smith. He's a great, as it happens, New Labour social entrepreneur. He just won the Obama Fellowship. And he set up a voluntary community-based social enterprise with Camden that allowed Camden to give them the savings from adult care done by the community. And the savings were substantial. And now he's set up North London and South London Cares, Care um, uh, Social Enterprise UK, I think we could do, we could see a revolution of community-based, neighbourly. This is kind of in some ways big society, but yeah. with real money and real power. And I'm not talking at all. I'm not a small state Tory. I'm not talking about winding back the state. I just think quite a lot of public services can be delivered better by people in communities. And I think on the social justice side, particularly, you know, we've 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 incubated quite a sort of dehumanising big state. Um, bureaucratic prison probation system and we've somehow got to restore the humanity 
And I think particularly young offenders, we could do so much more to get them off the treadmill and give them some chance and a bit of hope in life. Um, you kind of mentioned cannabis earlier. Yeah. Uh, could that be Boris Johnson's gay marriage legalization? The kind of drumbeat's growing. He's hired a couple of advisors who I think are pro-legalization or have uh, expressed pro-legalization views in the past. Is that something you'd like to see? Do you think it's something he could do? If any prime minister could get away with it, it'd probably be Boris Johnson. Well, look, I, I've, I led the charge on medicinal cannabis yeah. um, because I think uh, the case was overwhelming that patients, some patients do seriously benefit. And uh, I'm very proud that we've, we've done it. I think naturally that leads to the, to the debate. I think it's still a live debate and I think it needs to be had, which is partly why we've put it at the heart of the big tent. I mean, the arguments are fascinating. A lot of police will tell you we're just losing this. The criminals are winning. They're making all the money. Let's license, regulate. Then we can monitor the quality properly, ensure people get clean cannabis. It's hardly the dirtiest or most dangerous drug out there these days. We could get a lot of revenue from it and then put that into public health and prevention. And also there's some very interesting cannabis technology I'm interested in. Uh, And there's a cannabis industry that's growing and becoming huge and Britain could lead in it. I think there are genuine ethical questions. I'm a bit worried, you know, when government becomes dependent on tax revenues from something, it has an incentive to maximize use of them. It's one of the problems Mm. on fuel duty, by the way. Governments have become quite dependent on that revenue, which creates a disincentive for government to drive forward on the stuff I want to do now, which is clean transport. Yeah. And by the way, the automation of vehicles, electrification, brilliant thing, and we're going to turbo it will lead to a big reduction in treasury income on fuel. So you can see you, there are these uh, unexpected side effects, and I think they're worth debating. But I sense, and the big tent interest in this debate is huge, I, I think it's one that will electrify this year's big tent festival in September. Really interesting. Um, that's very interesting what you were saying about driverless cars there and automated transport and it creating a tax problem. Are there any other kind of innovations that are coming down the track which might create similar problems from the gov- for, for governments, and how, how can they deal with that? Do they have to replace the tax revenue with something else? Yeah, there are tons. And I, I'm, yeah. So when I was chair of the Number 10 Policy Board in 2016, um, I, I framed that remit around um, three things, looking out at technological and society, economic and social changes that are coming our way that most civil servants, most departments don't have the bandwidth to look out of the window and anticipate. Um, secondly, the people and place dimension of policy. Now, your listeners may think, well, isn't that the only dimension? But actually, in Whitehall, we're very good at sort of doing, here's a policy for antenatal mums, and here's a policy for post-pregnancy. But we don't think... Jams. Right. What's it like to be a mum with three children, also caring for an elderly parent with dementia, and doing two part-time jobs? So we're not very good at thinking about the, the total of existence or what's it like to grow up in a failing market town or a seaside town. And then thirdly, um, those policies or those issues that require a pan-government policy response for which there's no lead, like mental health. You, you, yes, every department should be doing something on mental health. But if we're really as a nation going to grip the challenge of mental health, it's going to have to be a very different um, response. I mean, there are a number of areas where this is really insurgent. I mean, we're going to lose, forecasts say we're going to lose 2 million drivers. So 2 million people currently engaged in driving vans, lorries, cars, taxis 
in 15, 20 years will be, they won't be, they just won't be there. Yeah. Be like fax machines. Yeah. When's the last time you used a fax? You know, it's just going to go. That's a massive retraining yeah. challenge. That's why I focused on skills. Yeah. I think we should be saying to the hauliers, don't worry, you're not going on the scrap heap. We're going to give you a massive retraining program. And I, so I, I'm very excited by this. I, it is challenging. And part of what the Big Tent Festival is about is being honest about the scale of the challenge and then showing people what best practice looks like from all around the country, highlighting the technologies. And, and then leaving, at the end of the day, what you tend to find is people say, that's amazing. I've just seen solutions. Why aren't we using them? And it becomes quite a powerful drumbeat to the political class. Start using this stuff. Start innovating more. Come on. You must, you must, you're obviously looking at this idea of transport at the moment and, and automated transport, and you're obviously asking yourself these questions about how do we retrain people, how do we replace the tax revenue, and so on. How quickly do you think we're going to see driverless cars on UK roads, and how quickly, therefore, does the government need to respond? Well, I um, I don't want to give away any future announcements, but we're, we're looking at, oh, go on. at some sort of pilots um, <laughs> offering the chance for some cities and mayors to just begin to do um, uh, pilots uh, in real time on, on the roads. Um, I mean, it's very easy with this stuff to over-predict some things and under-predict others. So um, electric planes... Uh, think about that for a minute. We assume, don't we, that planes are thin aluminium tubes with big hunking petrol guzzling, diesel guzzling, aviation fuel guzzling yeah, engines. Horrible for the environment. Yeah. And, and Actually, there's a revolution coming. Smaller, lighter planes, hybrid planes. They need a bit of uh, diesel uh, aviation fuel to get off, but then they're electric for the rest of the flight. There is actually a, an electric plane already in service, uh, which I'm shortly going to be going to visit. So this is quite... A, you know, really quite exciting stuff. Yeah. And part of my job is to make sure that we, well, is to turn the DFT really from a sort of traditional Whitehall silo department for, you know, one half does rail, one half does roads, the other bit does aviation and maritime, from a sort of network rail complaints department, franchising, yeah. you know, department for complex franchising, to the sort of NASA of 21st century connected transport. And Britain is really good at this stuff. Uh, and it's a global export. We should be going out, I, I would argue, using our DFID budget and helping places like Nairobi and Manila. I was trade envoy in the Philippines. These guys need smart traffic lights. They need the apps. You know, at our festival in the technology tent, we're profiling GovTech, incredible new sector. And when you meet the GovTech companies, there's often sort of 10, 15 people, software, app developers, and they're doing sort of apps that will reduce congestion in cities by 10%, apps that will reduce carbon it's fantastic stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that you refer to, you know, your jo- job to turn DFT into a kind of NASA. Dominic Cummings is is a very well-known fan of DARPA, the innovative... Yeah, me too. Yeah, okay, right. So you must have had a chat with Dom about this. How much is he, How much influence do you think he's having on, on this agenda within the government? I'm delighted to say he's having a huge influence yeah. on it. And um, I think, you know... It's always interesting when you're in that sort of situation. The media love to um, turn those sort of advisors, key advisors, into sort of dark figures of <laughs> mystery and mi- mischief. You know, from Alistair Campbell to uh, Steve Hilton to Dom Cummings. But uh, Dom has a very strong view about technology 
as a force for good in breaking up silos, breaking up self-serving bureaucracies and monopolies and empowering 21st century citizens. Now, that is, that's why I joined up as a conservative. I, I gave up a business career in technology because I think there is a genuine quiet revolution here. If we get it right, um, we could really shift the power in favor of people, communities, the places that have been left behind. Great. Uh, let's just go a bit wider now. And the Tories have had a problem with women, ethnic minority, and young voters for quite a while now. Labour do a lot better on all those fronts. Do you put that down to policy or presentation? What do you put it down to? And is there a Labour policy that you'd like to actually see the Conservatives adopt? Well, two great questions. Um, yeah, look, we, we totally have... Uh, a problem in terms of public perception and appeal. I mean, interestingly, you know, the Conservative Party is the first party that's had two women prime ministers and first party to, um, uh, you know, have a Muslim chancellor and, and all that. We, we're we not actually a party of um, of those stereotypes, but we're still perceived to be. And I think that's partly to do with the the makeup of the party, party membership. And the truth is, I think we've neglected rather lazily for 20, 30 years party membership in the Conservative Party, certainly. And I think it was probably true in the Labour Party. And guess what? It really matters. Um, and I think a lot of a whole generation of MPs thought it doesn't really matter that, you know, the local membership of there are local staunch activists. And, and that's great. Um, in, in my constituency, I have 300 members and uh, 32,000 people voted for me. But actually, it turns out it really does matter, particularly when you're picking a leader. Yeah. Um, and also, I think it is policy. I think I think the way that Theresa May handled the post-Brexit period, I, I'm afraid, and I, I've been very polite about it, but I do think it was a disaster. And I think her desperation to signal in the early months to the hardliners that she, that she was reliable on Brexit and then make a whole series of red line promises that I had my head in my hands because I, I knew you wouldn't be able to unite the country and deliver them. And then tack back with quite a soft Brexit deal, yeah. which I quite liked in that sense, but was clearly never going to land. And, I, you know, I, I had prayed and urged and advised her at the time in 2016 to say this country is divided and my job is to bring us back together. I'm going to pursue a, a Brexit on behalf of the many, not the few. And if it alienates the hard right Brexiteers who have taken this in some weird way as a mandate for a sort of little England, Atlanticist, small state dream, I've got bad news for you. And if it's those self-styled Ramonas who refuse to accept the legitimacy, I've got bad news for you too. We are going to leave the political union, but we're going to try and stay as close as we can. I think she would have won a thumping majority in 17. Mm. I think we're paying the price for some pretty clunky and very bad politics in the last three years. Isn't hasn't Boris Johnson got the same problem in that he he is relying on the ERG to stay in office and for a majority at the moment? No, I, I mean interestingly, this this reshuffle um, has shocked quite a lot of people. I mean, some of the ERG, you know, Steve Baker, for example, who everyone was tipping for a cabinet. Well, he turned down a job in the end, didn't he? A junior yeah, role. But, but yeah. there are quite a lot of. Um, I, mean, I, you know, I don't want to make this all about the ERG, but there were quite a lot of signs that actually uh, the PM and Dominic Cummings and others have 
deliberately set about constructing a new alliance of sort of bold one nation radical reformers. Uh, I think that's why I'm, for example, in the government, having been quite skeptical about hard Brexit in the past and um, committed Brexiteers. And they're trying to build a new a new alliance. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, tr- the, the truth is we the government has a majority of one. Yeah. That is not sustainable. And I think Boris has got, you know, two or three months to set out a bold commitment to really inspiring domestic reform, set out a message about what sort of Britain we want to be beyond Brexit, and negotiate hard and try and get a deal we can live with. In the end, I think that there will be an election at some point. And I, as I say, I genuinely can't judge whether the national mood will be, um, this can't go on, we have to break out, which is my view. If, if this is kind of tumble-dryer politics, just goes round and round and round, dividing and depressing and putting off investment. We have to make a decision. Yeah. Or whether people decide after three years of pretty clumsy government, the elastic's overstretched and there's a big shift, shift to the Lib Dems and there's some sort of national government of anti-Tory, anti-Brexit um, coalition, which well, is what's being discussed in Parliament at the moment. That's interesting because that's quite a kind of big, tenty idea, isn't it? A kind of government of national unity, cross-party cooperation and so on. Well, we've been very clear the big tent is, is not a party yeah. and is not trying to create a party at all. Yeah. It's a forum for a better politics. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Rory Stewart is coming. He's one of our star draws. First session. Listeners, don't miss it. Uh, and I, I, th- I think there is a kind of you know, if you did a 20,000-foot summary of British politics, if someone had been away for the last 10 years, you'd say, well, uh, you've missed quite a decade. <laughs> um, basically, the uh, deep grievances, the Conservative Party thought that Brexit would kind of solve them. It's now trying to kind of form a, a kind of a coalition that could harness the we-want-to-leave vote with the we-don't-really-want-to-leave, but we-want-reform. Mm-hmm. The Labour Party is deeply split. Yeah and has been successfully riding two horses as a Remain party down south and a Leave party up north. I think they're about to have a date with destiny, by the way. I, I suspect the Lib Dems are going to take a lot of seats off Labour in London and South East, and the Brexit party and maybe hopefully the Conservative party will take some seats up, up, up north. And I just couldn't call at the moment. Is this a, a sort of 1982 moment in the sort of Conservative in the 1980s? Small majority, we break through, do something inspiring tough it out and then win and and shape the next decade or is this a moment where politics completely realigns no one knows and as participants in it all i can do is fight campaign do everything i can to fight for a better politics which is what the big tent is about and a better conservatism and see who wins great that seems like a great place to leave it george thank you very much for coming on thank you for having me and i i hope um uh, that your support for the Big Ten, I, I think, will help to make this a moment where, whether you're for any party or against, you can come and get involved, debate the big issues of the day, have a voice. We're about trying to give a voice, and this year's festival will have a much stronger theme on participation, voting. We're doing Slido decks. We're going to be capturing people's views and, and putting together in the coming year, as we take the Big Ten around the country, uh, a sort of people's charter for renewal. It's a really exciting project, so thanks for helping it. It should be great. We're looking forward to it as well.
The Big Tent Ideas Festival is on Saturday, August the 31st in Mudshoot Park and Farm in London. Tickets are available at bigtent.org.uk. See you there. Thank you.